1 Corinthians chapter 2. Today we are going to begin rule number 6, comparing Scripture with Scripture. There are, I don't want to downplay any of the rules. Out of all 15 of the rules, they're all important. You need to utilize all 15 of them regularly in your Bible reading, Bible studying. But there are a few that just stand out that are just, man, this is key. This is killer. These are some of the top rules that you will use again and again and again. Context is one of them. If I had to say it, uh, comparing Scripture to Scripture is probably the second uh, biggest as far as the ones that you will use again and again and again. Comparing Scripture to Scripture, the rule basically says this, the top of your study sheet, the Bible is of no... Read that again. No private interpretation. All interpretations must be made by comparing Scripture with other Scripture. The key verses that go along with this, look at 2 Peter 1.20 on your outline. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. Do you understand what this verse does? And why you and every single person in this room should know this regularly, should know where to turn to, to show it to somebody. You should even memorize it so that you can quote it to people. This destroys the argument of, well, that's just your interpretation. That's just how you read the Bible. Anybody get that from your friends or teachers or anybody at school? I've gotten it from my family members for all my life. Well, that's just how you look at the Bible. You know that I can look at the Bible also and read the exact same passage and come up with a different interpretation myself? I've been, asked, I've been asked that for years, and then one conversation with a family member of mine, I finally realized, like, oh, yeah, you know what? You're absolutely right. The only thing is, we call that the devotional application of Scripture, where you might look at something and God speaks something to you about that passage, about something you need to do, and it's the same thing with me. I might read the same exact passage and realize I need to do something, but it's different than what God's asking you to do. You're absolutely right. It's called the devotional application. Now, if you start going on saying, like, you believe this is saying doctrinally something different than what I believe it's saying is doctrinally, well, then that's what we're going to bank on. There's no private interpretation. You're privately interpreting what you think the passage is saying. This also destroys the, ar- the not the argument, but also destroys the common mantra that is passed around in various faith, interfaith Bible studies of what does this passage mean to you? Anybody a part of a Bible study at your school where you've had people ask that? The leader asked that? Well, what does this passage mean to you? Well, what does it mean to you? And lo and behold, you have 17 different interpretations by 17 different students about a passage, and they all mean something different. The only problem is they can't all be right. They can't all mean the exact same thing. Now, again, if it's more devotional application, that's a different story. But unfortunately, this is done in a lot of seminary schools. This is done in a lot of Bible colleges. This is done in a lot of Bible institutes where it's very, very much, what does this mean to you? What does this mean to you? And you have all these different interpretations. The only problem is they can't all be right. Next key verse. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And I really want to go through, man, the entire chapter is just so awesome. But to to summarize it, Paul is talking the first half of chapter 2 that the wisdom of God, the, the understanding the Bible and what Jesus Christ has to say, it cannot be interpreted through human intellectual wisdom and means. Understanding the Bible cannot come by education, 
by your own reasoning, your own wisdom, the things that you have learned in your experiences. No, the first couple verses of chapter 2, Paul destroys that saying, no, that's not the case at all. Because this is a spiritual book that must be interpreted spiritually. Look at verse 9. He says, But as it is written, I have not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love Him. And that might sound like a verse, you might have even heard that verse used as a gospel presentation before, or even in a sense of, man, Christian, you have no idea what awaits you in heaven one day. And that's true. No eye, no ear has seen or heard the wondrous things that God has for us, whether it be in eternity or even for the rest of your life. Problem with that is that that's not what he's talking about here in this chapter. Let's keep reading. But God hath revealed them unto us by His Spirit, for the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. I'm in verse 10. For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the Spirit of a man which is in him? Even so the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. You see how he's talking about something more here? He's talking about something that you can know, you can understand right now. So he's not talking about the future plans that God has for you in your life. He's not talking about eternity future and what God has in store for us then. No, he's talking about something that you can know and can be revealed to you right now. Look at verse 12. Now we, speaking to a church have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. And here's the key verse. Which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth. And here's the key word, key phrase. Comparing spiritual things with spiritual. What are spiritual things? I always forget these beginning slides that I do. Why do I even have these beginning slides? It's pointless. We just read 2 Peter 1.20, the start, talking about no private interpretation of the Scripture. He follows it up in verse 21, saying, The prophecy, spoken word, came not in old time by the will of man. In other words, it wasn't man's wisdom. It wasn't man's intellect that was speaking good spiritual truths about God. No. But holy men of God spake as they were moved by the who? The Holy Ghost. Well, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 13, we say that we, that we learn of God, we learn the deep things of God by the things the Holy Ghost teaches. And if we compare spiritual things with spiritual, the Holy Spirit, here are some of the things He teaches. Romans 7, 14. For we know that the law is what? Spiritual. Spiritual. And what's the law? Jack? God's Word. God's Word. Specifically, it's the Ten Commandments. Even broader than that, it's Genesis to Deuteronomy. But that's even a phrase that's used, especially when you study Psalm 119, it's a phrase that's used to talk about God's Word. And John 6, 63, Christ speaking. It is the Spirit that quickeneth. Talked about that word Wednesday night. It means to make alive. The flesh profiteth nothing. No matter how much you try with your own intellect, your own reasoning, you're not going to descend into the deep things of God's Word. The words that I speak unto you, they are what? 
spirit, and they are life. So if you want to know what he means by comparing spiritual things with spiritual things, all you have to do is compare Scripture with Scripture, and you'll find out what the spiritual things are, and the spiritual things are His Word. And it's funny, it seems very, very remedial and elementary, but believe it or not, I didn't plan on having this demonstration be an example of how you actually perform the rule. Because I remember when I first read verse 13, I'm like, spiritual things are spiritual things. That's a pretty broad phrase. A spiritual thing could be a book written by a Christian man or a woman. That's a spiritual thing that you can compare and you can learn God from. A spiritual thing might be another believer in here. But when you take things and you trace them throughout the Bible, you will see that the Bible is a self-defining book. You just have to take the time and the work to study it out, and you'll get the answer for a simple question like, what on earth is a spiritual thing? How does the Bible use it? And there's two verses right there. So that's the principle, that's the key of comparing Scripture with Scripture. Some important concepts back on your outline. I've talked about this before, and this will go quick. The Bible is God's book written for man. He inspired over 40 authors from various cultures to write his words over a time span of 2,000 years. Most of them did not know each other or read each other's writings, and yet God compiled it all together seamlessly and without contradictions. More on that in two weeks. There are seeming contradictory statements and phrases and verses in the Bible, but they're only seemingly. They're only apparent. You can work it out through study. Next check mark. God inspired the New Testament writers and speakers, Jesus, Peter, Paul, amongst others, to often quote the Old Testament as support of New Testament doctrine. They applied this key of Bible study by comparing Scripture with Scripture. One of the most beautiful uh, examples of this in all the Bible is what happened after Jesus Christ was baptized? What happened to him immediately afterwards? Anybody know? Anybody reading the Gospels recently? Ricky? Well, let somebody else answer. Oh. He was baptized. He went up straightway. He went up straightway into where? The wilderness. Thank you, Caleb. Good job. All right. Wilderness. And what happened to him while he was in the wilderness? He was tempted. Of who? The devil. For how long? 40 days. And you know what his weapon of defense was? You know how he resisted the temptations of Satan every single day of his trial? By comparing Scripture with Scripture. Whenever Satan would say something that came against God's Word, what were the three words that Christ would respond back with? It is written. And he would quote Scripture. If that helped Jesus to defeat the temptations of the enemy on a daily basis. I think it's something that we might to take part of, that we might want to take heed to. It is written, it is written, it is written. Next checkpoint. God always establishes a matter with two or three witnesses. You want to check these passages out later. 
especially the Isaiah 28 passages, but really what this is saying is that in the mouth of two or three witnesses in the Old Testament law, whenever somebody was going to trial, whenever somebody was accused of committing a crime or something, you needed two or three witnesses in order to solidify it. And really it's the same thing today. In a courtroom setting, do you not need witnesses in a trial in order to convict or to negate somebody or make them not guilty of a crime that they committed? You can't just have it be, well, so-and-so said this, so yeah, you're guilty. No, you need witnesses. The Bible talks about there being two or three. And really, when we apply this concept, and this is where Isaiah 28 is key with it, we don't want to just base what we believe on one standalone verse. We want two or three verses to back up what we believe. That's why every single doctrine of this, that's why just about every single study sheet I give you guys, I want there to be at least two verses on there so that you see that this, what I'm saying on here, it's an established biblical principle and not just the words of Corey. That's the reason why. And it should be that way with your own personal Bible study as well. And the last check mark. The best commentary on the Bible is the Bible itself. I don't know how many of you guys are readers outside of the Bible, but there are Bible commentaries out there. Number one, you got to be very, very careful because you don't know who the guy writing the Bible commentary, what he believes fully. And even if he is someone who lines up with believing what the Bible says, believes what we believe, you still want to be very, very careful because now you're just banking what you believe on the Bible based upon what some other guy studied. And it really just outlaws and gets rid of the need for you personally to develop Bible study. So you want to be careful with that. And you want to try to avoid Bible commentaries. We were taught even in the Bible Institute when you're preparing your message, they can be helpful, but let it be, if you need to, let it be the absolute last thing you look at after you've already done the work yourself just to see, well, what is this guy's viewpoint? Maybe he has a little bit of a different spin or maybe you're having a hard time articulating it. Maybe the way that they word it will help you do that. The Bible is the best commentary of itself, not our personal opinions or anyone else's. You must, pay attention, this is key, you must learn how to exercise yourself with how to use cross-referencing. There's a tool called the Treasury of Scripture Knowledge. Again, we covered this back when we were doing our Second Peter study in the classroom setting we had. And a concordance, a Strong's Concordance it's called. That gives every Bible reference where each word in the Bible is used. There are good online resources to use. I think the, the big one that we all know is Blue Letter Bible. Or apps you can install on your computer. There's a list of them there that you can get. Tablet or smartphone. I hope each and every single one of you have at least one of these installed. And that whenever you're doing, even if it's just Bible reading, that you guys are utilizing these tools to know, okay, where else does this interesting word show up in the Bible? Where else does this concept or this phrase show up? How does God define this word or this, this phrase or this verse throughout the rest of the Bible? Let the Bible interpret itself because there is no private interpretation of Scripture. Let the Bible be the Bible. Let it define itself. God will show it to you. He will reveal it to you when you compare spiritual things with spiritual things. All right. So, 
Some examples of comparing Scripture with Scripture. I want to try something here. I have absolutely no idea how it's going to go. I want, by a show of hands, which means you've got to be paying attention, I want by a show of hands, and I do not want anyone to say the answer out loud at all. I just want a show of hands. Who here knows, in the Bible, who the Leviathan is? Two and a half. Okay, so two halves make three. Four. Okay. Five. Uh, okay. Raise your hands high, just so I know. Even if you're halvesies, go ahead. All right. We're gaining more. All right. Last chance. Anybody else? All right. So, second question. Who here thinks they might know who Leviathan is? If you already voted, don't vote again. You guys are doing the Gavin hand raise. Okay. Final question. And I want to see who's bold. Who thinks they can come up here right now and using the Bible and your resources, so if you have your phone, bring it up, and who thinks that they can walk through in about five minutes, ten minutes, take your time, and define who the Leviathan is by going through the Bible? Who's going to be bold? I'm looking for volunteers first, not figuring out the answer first and then coming up here. No, come up here and do it live, in real time. Seriously. All right. Come on up, Mad Dog. It's your show. Oh, hold on. Let me take the microphone off so that we can get you recorded on this. It's all right. I have no idea how this is going to go. Uh, for the record, did I uh, did I talk with you at all about this? No, I don't know what I'm going to do. All right. I'll, I'll figure it out. Take it away, Mad Dog. Oh, I yeah. Take your time. Get all set up. We got time. Oh, you just let me take over? Yeah. Is that what we're doing here? Yeah, if you go like beyond 10 minutes or even, <laughs> I might have to cut, cut you off before 10 minutes is up. But, yeah, uh, you should definitely okay, do that. Until I come back from the restroom. In Psalm seventy four fourteen. All right, let's all turn there. Here, I'll give you more time. That way, you can keep looking. So, for clarity's sake, yeah, I know exactly. So, for clarity's sake, uh, Leviathan. That word shows up in Job forty one. That's true. And if you have a Bible that might have some notes in it, you might see that people say it's a crocodile. You might see some people say it's a hippopotamus. You'll have some people say it's a whirlpool. I am not joking or making this up. Many scholars who have gone to Bible school have said that the Leviathan in Job 41 is a crocodile or a hippopotamus or a whirlpool. 
I want Mad Dog here on the spur of the moment, just in the next five minutes, to use the Bible just to show you who he actually is. In Psalm 74, 14, thou breakest the heads of the Leviathan. So, I mean, right there it says that it has multiple heads. So, if you just look at that, it shouldn't be, a, I mean, it can't be a crocodile because crocodiles don't have multiple heads. And it gavest him to be meat to the people inhabiting the wilderness. And then if you go to Isaiah 27, 1. 27, 1. Um, it says, In that day the Lord with his sore and great and strong sword shall punish Leviathan, the piercing serpent. I mean, right there it says it's a serpent. Even Leviathan, that crooked serpent. And he shall slay the dragon that is in the sea. So right there, I mean, it clearly says that it's a dragon. Keep going. Um, I don't know where else to go. <laughs> All right, so this is great. Now, you looked up, just by looking at the word Leviathan, Yeah. you saw some things. Uh-huh. But we are kind of running the end of the line as far as where this phrase shows up in the Bible. Oh, but you gracious. came up with a couple of different words. So why don't you, in your little oh, crossroads shoulder, type in the word serpent. Yeah. Give a space, and then type in dragon, and see if there's a verse that shows up at the end of your Bible. Oh, I'm assuming there is then. <laughs> I don't know. I just said, let's see. <coughs> oh, Revelation 20, verse 2. <laughs> uh, Actually, uh, uh, Revelation 12, 9, is that what you're looking there, for? There you yeah, yeah, there you go. <laughs> Do verse 3 and 9. 3 and 9? Well, that means I have to go somewhere. Are you guys in chapter 12? Verse 3, And there appeared another wander in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his head. I mean, if you go back to the other verse we read in Psalms, it said it had multiple heads, so that correlates with that. And then verse 9, and the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Well, there you go. It's the devil with multiple heads and the dragon. There you go. Yeah. Give him a round of applause. Now, a couple of things I want to say on this. <laughs> hey, Caleb. Hey, what? Uh, tell us all how much you love education in school. Oh, I love it so much. You guys. It's my favorite. I you, totally don't leave every day. You catch the sarcasm in that, right? You guys catch the sarcasm in that? Yeah. Now, here's the thing. Do you know how many Bible scholars and Bible students, experts of the Bible, believe that in Job 41 
the Leviathan is a hippopotamus or a crocodile or a whirlpool and how they have put their findings into Bibles, various Bible versions on the market right now. And how many people are being deceived when they read their Bibles and they see that and they're just taking that guy's word for it. And yet, a 15-year-old in a hoodie and shorts in the middle of fall who hates school, just in five minutes was able to take his Bible, comparing spiritual things with spiritual things, and was able to get the answer down without his own private interpretation. You know that verse in Psalm 119 when it says that, you believe this book, you'll be smarter than your teachers, you'll be smarter than all the ancients. That's living proof right there. Don't let that go to your head. So turn over to Job 41. So now that we have this understanding of who Leviathan actually is, what this now does for us is when we come to a passage like this after we've already done our work, and again, in some cases, it might only take five minutes. We can now look at a passage like Job 41, which was previously confusing to us, and now we might see something that is incredible. Because Job 41 is the passage that is the most extensive description of who your enemy, the devil, is in all of the entire Bible. In all of the entire Bible. The most extensive description of who he is. Verse 1, this is God speaking. Canst thou draw out Leviathan with an hook or his tongue with a cord which thou lettest down? Jump down to verse 12. I will not conceal his parts, nor his power, nor his comely proportion. You know what God is saying? He's saying, I'm not going to hide who he is. And in fact, over the last five minutes, we just revealed who he is, who he really is, by comparing spiritual things with spiritual things. How about that? God said he's not going to conceal his parts. He's not going to hide him. Nor his comely proportion. That means that he is actually beautiful. He is very alluring. You are drawn to him. You're drawn to his ways on a daily basis. Verse 13. Who can discover the face of his garment? Verse 14, who can open the doors of his face? His teeth are terrible round about. In other words, he has a face. He has a, a, uh, a garment in front of his face, and he has doors about his face. In other words, he's wearing a mask. He has a facade. Who is willing to discern? Who is willing to go the extra minute, the extra mile, comparing spiritual things with spiritual, to discern who he really is and to look past the facade of who he really is? The pitchfork, the double horns, and the tail. That's not who he is. And no, he's not in hell. Verse 15, his scales are his pride, shut up together as with a close seal. He is completely and utterly covered in pride. Verse 33, of all of God's creation, there is none like him. Upon the earth, there is none like his like who is made without fear. And look at verse 34. He beholdeth the high, he beholdeth all high things. He is a king over all the children of pride. 
And that would jog your mind if you're familiar with Ephesians 2.2. 2. It says that he is the prince and the power of the air upon all of the children of disobedience, the children of pride, in whom you once found yourself in in times past, but now you are saved, so you are no longer his child. Wow. A previously confusing passage now becomes made alive by comparing Scripture to Scripture to find out who Leviathan really is. Now you can go back and reread this passage and you're like, oh, so that's actually saying that he's like this and he's like that. That's Leviathan. And I'm glad that, Caleb, I, I really do applaud you for having the boldness to come up here and do that. But I do want to say this, and, and I get it. It's, it's not easy to come up here and uh, you already saw the nervousness that was on him. But let me just say this. If we know the answer to a question, we better be able and willing to be able to demonstrate it to people if they ask us. That's what 1 Peter 3.15 says. We need to sanctify the Lord God in our hearts. That means set time aside for Him. That we may be ready to give an answer of the reason of the hope that is in us with meekness and fear. Be ready to give an answer to every man that asketh of the reason. We need to not only know what we believe, the Leviathan is the devil. Many of your hands rose and said that. But we also need to know, here's how I know the Leviathan is the devil, and let me show you. That's taking what you guys have grown up in this church knowing to the next level, where it's not just about, I know who it is, can you show me? Using the scripture and using various tools to help you. That's what you want to aim for. That should be your target. Next one. We're going to have a bit of fun with this one. Turn over to Revelation 4. At least I think we will. I had fun looking at this stuff this week. Your next example on here, the sea of glass. Hmm. Hmm. Who could tell me from our study in Revelation not too long ago, what are chapters 2 and 3 all about? Church age. Church history. Yeah, church history. And then you come to chapter 4, verse 1, after the Laodicean church is just rebuked harshly at the end of chapter 3. After this, John writes, I looked and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was, as it were, a trumpet talking with me, which said, come up hither and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. Chapter 4, verse 1, after the church history, heaven opens up and somebody gets caught up, gets raptured up into the air. So John is in heaven now, and he talks about seeing a throne in verse 4, with four and twenty elders round about. And he says in verse 6, And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal, and in the midst of the throne and round about the throne there were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. Wow, that's trippy. So he has this weird phraseology, the sea of glass. And obviously we get it. I mean, we're in heaven. It's a throne. And so obviously if it's a, if he's, you know, the throne is up there, the sea of glass is below. Obviously it's like he's walking around on this sea of glass. So we kind of get that. But just out of mere curiosity, if you were to see a phrase like that and you'd want to know, I wonder if the Bible says anything else about this and what more I can glean and learn from it, where would you go? So I look at a verse like this in chapter 4, and I'm like, well, if this is in heaven, 
where's the first place I would want to turn to to learn about heaven? The first place. Genesis. So let's go over to Genesis chapter 1 and see what God has to say about heaven. Genesis chapter 1. Oh, Lord, let me not get too deep on this. No pun intended after we read verse 2. In the beginning, verse 1, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Jump down to verse 6. And God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. So you see here, number there's a couple things you might want to take note on. There's some space on your, your outline here to do so. Verse 2, we see that there's this phrase called the deep. The earth is covered in water, and he calls it the face of the deep. But not only that, there's heaven and there's earth, and there's no separation really at this moment. Yeah, the earth is covered in water, it's without form and void, but this whole entire expanse, it's, it's called the deep, heaven and earth together. And then in verse 6, you see that he wants there to be a division. There wants there to be, he wants there to be waters below and waters above, and there's this expanse or there's this space in between the waters that are up and the waters that are down. There's this firmament or this expanse of space. Look at verse 7. And God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. And look at verse 9. Let the waters under the heaven be gathered together unto one place. Let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters he called he seas. And God saw that it was good. Now, I wanted to say, in verses 9 and 10, that's actually where he creates the ocean, the seas, in other words. But, before verses 9 and 10, in verses 6 and 7, that is where he creates what is known as, there's three levels of heaven. Did you guys realize that, that there's actually three levels of heaven? You have the dwelling place of God, that's the third heaven. You have this firmament that he just created, called outer space, the second heaven. And then you have the atmosphere. And we get that by searching out the phrase heavens, and we come to a very interesting passage in Psalm 148. Turn over there. This firmament that he created in verses 6 and 7, it divided the waters above and the waters below. Waters below, obviously, being earth. This expanse of space in the firmament. And then you have waters above even that. You know what's neat? We don't have time to look at all of these 13 verses on here. But you know what's kind of cool if you, again, want to take notes? All three of the heavens are found here. Verses, well, let's just read verses 1 and 2 first. Praise ye the Lord. Praise ye the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights. Praise ye Him all His... What? Praise ye Him all His hosts. Somebody tell me, where are the angels and the hosts of God? 
in the third heaven, the dwelling place of God, the throne of God. That's the third heaven. Okay? And then he goes down, and you could read in verses uh, you know, 3 through 6 later, which we're going to read a couple of it. But that's where he's talking about outer space. Because he talks about the sun and the moon and the stars. That's the second heaven. And then verses 7 to 13, he talks about things that are in the atmosphere, that are on this earth. That's the third heaven. But look at verse 4. Talking about this second heaven, he says, Praise Him, ye heavens of heavens. Remember, this is the second heaven. This is outer space. And ye waters that be above the heavens. So right after the verse that talks about praise ye Him, sun, moon, and stars, outer space, second heaven, he says, Praise Him, you waters which are above the waters. Talking about... This water that was up here after the firmament of space divided the two, made, creating three heavens. wonder if that has to do with the sea of glass. So if I'm searching out heavens, because I, I got that, that unction to do that through Genesis chapter 1. If I keep searching out the word heavens into my little handy-dandy uh, Bible study tool, you'll come across Job 9, verses 5 through 9. And he says, verse 5, which removeth the mountains, and they know not which overturneth them in his anger, which shaketh the earth out of her place, and the pillars thereof tremble, which commandeth the sun, and it riseth not, and sealeth up the stars, which alone spreadeth out the heavens, and treadeth upon the waves of the sea. And notice he mentions waves of the sea after he talks about spreading out the heavens. And even further, how we know he's talking about that second heaven of outer space, look what he mentions in verse 9. Which maketh Arcturus, Orion, and Pleiades, and the chambers of the south. Even if you don't know two of the three, everybody I'm sure at least has heard of one of those names. And what is it? And which is what? A constellation. He's talking about waves of the sea. In Genesis 1-2, he calls it the deep. And it's in the second heaven. It's at the very top of the second heaven, right before you get to the throne of God. And you keep going. In Psalm 104, you come across this passage. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, thou art very great. Thou art clothed with honor and majesty, who coverest thyself with light as with a garment, who stretchest out the heavens like a curtain. Verse 3 who layeth the beams of his chambers in the, what? Waters. Waters. Who maketh the clouds his chariot, who walketh upon the wings of the wind. What you're finding out from here is that at the very base of the throne of God, the bottom of the third heaven, if you will, top of the second heaven, there are waters that he lays the beams of his chambers, his, his dwelling place, on top of these waters. And you notice another key word that keeps showing up here. Because now as I'm searching, I've exhausted my means of the word heavens. But man, these, this phrase waters keeps showing up. So I start to search out waters. And I come across a passage like Job 26, 7, where it says, He stretcheth out the north over the empty place. We could go a while there. And hangeth the earth upon nothing. You realize it took scientists up until like the 1500s before they realized that the earth is just suspended in air. Suspended upon nothing. And here, 
in the Bible. It shows it. He bindeth up the waters in his thick clouds, and the cloud is not rent under them. He holdeth back the face of his throne and spreadeth his cloud upon it. In other words, mankind cannot invent a telescope powerful enough to get through the throne of heaven itself because of these waters in his thick clouds at the top of the second heaven that makes the sea of glass that we're talking about here. Keep hanging in there. I am going somewhere with this. So if I keep going with this waters kick, I'll come up to Job 38, 29 to 30. Man, there's a lot of verses in the book of Job, aren't there? Hmm. Hmm. Out of whose womb came the ice? Hmm. A sea of glass. If you could put sea of glass into today's terminology, what word do you think you'd use? Ice. Ice. And the hoary frost, white frost of heaven, who hath gendered it? The waters are hid as with a stone, and the face of what? The deep is frozen like a sea of glass. This word, this phrase deep shows up again. And man, so now I'm going to search out this phrase deep because God just keeps bringing it up in my search and in my cross-referencing. I'm going to search up the deep. And wow, I'm back in Job 41, which talks about the Leviathan. Who we just identified is who, Mad Dog? Dragon, the devil. The devil. It says, He, Leviathan, maketh the deep to boil like a pot. He maketh the sea like a pot of ointment. He maketh a path to shine after him. Is that a shooting star? One would think the deep... To be hoary or white. You guys ever go out to the ocean or a lake or whatever, and you see a fish jump out and then it splashes. What happens to the water? Ripples. Ripples and it turns what? White. Hoary is what that word means. But this isn't talking about waters on the earth. Because I compared scripture with scripture. Hmm. Hmm. You know... I guess that's the reason why so many of these smart Bible scholars thought that the Leviathan, he must be an aquatic beast because of all these mentions of the deep and the sea. And I'm really glad you didn't go to the one passage that talks about Leviathan because I have it right here. Psalm 104, 25 to 26. So is this great and wide, what? Sea. Wherein are things creeping innumerable? Let that boil your noodle for a little bit. Both small and great beasts are in the sea. There go the ships. There is that Leviathan whom thou hast made to play therein. Are we talking about the sea of the world of the earth? We're talking about the sea that is in between the second and the third heaven. And, and what did God call that firmament again? What's that second heaven known as? 
first heaven is the atmosphere, the third heaven is heaven, second space. And that there are ships in that space. We call ships that are in space spaceships. Creepy, huh? That's where the Leviathan is. You read that, and then you remember, oh yeah, New Testament stuff now. I just know this from growing up in this church. Ephesians 2, 2, Wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. See, now that I've identified that the Leviathan is Satan, I start going to all these other verses that I know of him to be, and he's the prince and the power of the air. He's not in hell. And then when you remember that, you remember in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, in whom he's called the lowercase g, God of this world. And that he is blinding the minds of all your friends that you go to school with on a daily basis, lest the, your light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. And then you remember Ephesians 6.12, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, just talked about this on Wednesday, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, who is ruled by who again? Satan. Satan. Against spiritual wickedness in high places. Remember Psalm 104, the Leviathan, he plays in that sea. He was made to play there in him and his ships and all of the creeping beasts innumerable that are in that deep. It's describing them. Principalities, powers, rulers of darkness of this world, spiritual wickedness in high places. That's Satan and all of his demonic forces. And then you remember, oh yeah, back here in Job, that... Angels, who, as you trace the phrase sons of God throughout Scripture, more on that in a second, angels are called the sons of God, and that they had access to the throne of God, but also you find that Satan himself had access to the throne. And Lord said to Satan, Whence comest thou? Satan answered, Ha! From going to and fro in the earth, and from walking up and down in it. And then you remember... We covered this not long ago. But as the days of Noe or Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. What was it like in Noah's day again? Genesis 6, And it came to pass when men began to multiply in the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God... This is not talking about Seth's godly line. Sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose, which implies that it was not consensual. And as a result of this ungodly union, they bred a race of giants in the earth in those days. And also after that, after the flood, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, they bare children to them. The same became mighty men which were of old, men of renown. And then you start really doing some digging, and you start doing some thinking. You're like, hmm. You know, I always thought Greek mythology and Roman mythology was just, you know, kind of weird. But then you think, huh. All of that mythology had its findings in the island of Crete. 
the island of Crete comes up in the book of Titus, and Paul even talks about how they have their stories. I wonder if these men of renown might be a lot of these ungodly creations that birthed these giants that ruled and wreaked havoc upon this earth. And oh, by the way, this is how it's going to be like before Christ comes back. And then you start thinking, to take it even further, oh yeah, our government has recently been talking and confirming about all these UFO encounters that they've seen. Just recently, did anybody catch this in the news this past year? Mm -hmm. How our government is saying like, yeah, you know, we have lots of evidence that UFOs exist. Number of UAP reports, I don't know why they're calling them that now, has risen to approximately 400, a significant increase from the 144 between 2004 and 2021. This is the House panel. This is ABC News. It's not some weird conspiracy theory site. They are opening up and talking about how they're seeing things in the second heaven that they can't explain. Hmm. And it's when you put all of this together, okay, if our own government is seeing these weird things, pyramid-shaped objects, oh, you can go a while on that one too. And sons of God in Noah's day were coming down and intermingling with the daughters of men and birthed these weird demonic giants. And the Bible says that in the days of the coming of the Son of God, so shall it be, or was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the coming of the Son of God. And Satan has access to and from heaven, as well as his dominions. And he's the prince of the power of this air, and he's the god of this world. Holy smokes. I'm realizing that I don't have much time left on this earth. And neither do my friends who are lost in the hell that awaits them if they are here when the rapture happens. You realize that the sea of glass isn't just where you're going to be standing one day to worship God. You realize that it's also the playground of all demonic activity that is constantly working against you to keep you defeated in your walk with that sin that so easily besets you, with those weights that distract you from sharing your gospel and your faith with your friends. It all stems from right up there. From the Leviathan. So... Last point on here, we're done. Again, we just kind of put how to use these cross-referencing material. You have the Treasury of Scripture Knowledge. Look that up. Again, all the stuff you can find on Blue Letter Bible, that's the one I use. You have Bible Concordance, which you can search out. Where does this word appear? That's what Caleb did. All he did was search out Leviathan, and boom, he found all the verses that referenced it. So I'm going to give you guys practice. It's the virtuous woman. Uh, we're not going to have time to go over this next week and check it as homework. This is for you guys. If this kind of stuff bothers you, then let's start putting it into practice. You know what's interesting about the virtuous woman? That phrase, other than Proverbs 31, it only shows up one other time in the Bible. Who's it to? You could tell me. There's only one person in all the Bible that's called a virtuous woman. Hint, it's on your outline. Thank you, Caleb. Oh, expected one of the ladies to get it. You're on fire today. Don't let that go to your head. It's Ruth. And when you look at the fact that Ruth is called that, again, you start thinking, hey, why was she called a virtuous woman? And the only other place I find it is in this lengthy chapter in Proverbs 31. And you start thinking about Ruth's story. You know what Ruth's story is? She was a Gentile from a cursed race of people, the Moabs. 
and she had heard that the Lord had visited his people in Bethlehem and that he had fed them from a famine with bread that satisfied them. And so she goes and joins them there and becomes a laborer in that field until the harvest when the man who she who loves her and falls in love with her takes her out of the harvest and they live happily ever after. Beautiful love story, ain't it? You know what your story is? You're a Gentile from a cursed race called the human race. And you heard that God had visited His people in a time of famine and gave them bread. He visited His people in the town of Bethlehem. And He fed and nourished the famine of their souls with bread. And you realized that you wanted to go there and you wanted to meet Him. And you found Him whom your soul loveth and you would not let Him go. And He made you a laborer into this field of harvest until the time of harvest when He calls you out to be with Him and to live happily ever after. So when you consider that, you see that Ruth's story is your story, which means that there are things in the book of Proverbs 31 about a virtuous woman that have to do with each and every single one of you guys. And spoiler alert, girls, you might want to take a half hour today to go over these passages. I even got the cross-references out there for you to check out and see how the verse in Proverbs lines up with a New Testament truth that helps you get a deeper understanding of Proverbs 31, because you might just be covering a little bit of it tonight in your Bible study. Let's pray.